feels like practically no one knows what postmodernism is, yet everyone has an opinion about it. Today's conversation with Akiva Malamit is an effort to bring some clarity to an unclear topic. We explore the basic ideas of postmodernism and then move on to their implications for culture, society, politics, and individuals. Akiva is a student in government at the Interdisciplinary Center in Herzliya, Israel. He's also a contributor to the site's Liberal Currents and Sweet Talk Conversation. I began by asking him the obvious question. A little while back, you published an article on libertarianism.org, the site I run for the Cato Institute, about postmodernism, which was was a fun piece, and I'll put a link into it in the show notes, because postmodernism is a term that a lot of people are aware of, and a lot of those people have strong opinions about it one way or another, but probably vanishingly few of them actually have any idea what it is. So maybe we could, we could start our conversation with just, and this is a big question, but what is postmodernism? Um, so I think you're definitely right that a lot of people talk about it without knowing what it is. Um, and unfortunately, postmodernism, probably like a lot of terms that are academic but are associated with a political movement, are understood more for that association than for the content. Um, so to connect it to, to sort of define it, um, postmodernism the, is basically a way of talking about how we understand the world through stories, through big um, narrative explanations of the way the world works. And the idea of postmodernism is to recognize that that's what we do when we look at the world and we try to understand it and to be more skeptical about whether the story that we're presented with is correct, true, convincing in various ways, and is not just a function of whether the logic or the ideas within a particular worldview make sense to us, but to recognize the presence of the worldview. So another way of putting it is the one that uh, Jean-Francois Lyotard puts in the postmodern condition, which is that Postmodernism is an incredulity towards meta narratives, right? Skepticism about big stories. So you could think about big stories as a variety of things. Religions are big stories. Science is a big story. Political ideologies are big stories. Pop cultural things, you know, especially when they affect your lifestyle in the form of music or movies, can be big stories. Um, and they orient us towards a way of looking at the world. So that's the, the brief understanding of postmodernism. There are larger issues within philosophy that it comes out of, but as a short tag, it's about being skeptical of stories. So th this idea of, of narratives that we are enmeshed in that inform our thinking, the stories, as you call them, um, you mentioned things like like religion and whatnot. And I want to, I want to, I guess, try to nail down what exactly we mean by stories in practice. Because as you said, we're not we're not just talking about like you know Star Wars is a story and the Lord of the Rings is a story. Like you know, explicitly narrative fiction. These are these are broader than that. But but a lot of people might like like religion might object to that term to referring to religion as a narrative or a story in the sense that like it's not it's it's more of a description it's you know this is the way the world is this is the way i ought to be in it this is my place in it um 
is there is there a meaningful distinction between that kind of story, like you know, someone describing the world as they understand it, and fictional stories, or is this is postmodernism in a sense about in some way saying there's not as much difference between those two things as you might initially think? Yeah, so I think the the part of the difficulty with postmodernism, I guess, sort of inherent to its its core identity, as you might expect, given what it's about, is a dis is a disagreement on that question. But the way that I would see it is, in fact, that there is less of a bright line between what we would consider a fictional story like Star Wars or Lord of the Rings and not just religion, but any description of the world that we, that we, that we have. The question that a postmodernist would ask is, what reasons do you have to believe that any story among others is more likely to be a, to like to be likely to be true or somehow getting at the way the world really is than any other story. So when we talk about, you know, is Star Wars true, you can talk about the fact that it was made up by a guy named George Lucas in our universe and that we have no evidence for it outside of the fact that it was made up by a guy named George Lucas. Therefore, the facts or the, the, just the stories within Star Wars are unlikely to actually have taken place. How far down does this go, though? Like... Because there's a, especially among conservatives who would criticize postmodernism, or I mean, just a lot of, among a lot of people who aren't aren't postmodernists. There's this kind of you know, you're saying everything is just a story, everything is just made up, and that you know no narrative is more true than any other, and so this ends up you know sounding like kind of the epistemic, uh, an epistemic version of like extreme relativism that you know my my reality is true for me and your reality is true for you and there's no because these are all narratives these are all stories there's no way for us to decide whose reality is closer to the truth which i mean you, you can can cause could potentially cause problems right like you could be like well my you know um, my belief in astrology is just as true as your belief in the germ theory of disease. But clearly there is something different about those two things. Right. So I think that goes back to the question of reasons to believe a story, right? So the core point that postmodernists make is the fact that we are individual human beings with limited mental capacities and a subjective perspective, right? We all exist as an individual being, right, with their own brain and processing and way of seeing the world, you know, both literally with our eyes, but also, you know, mentally and psychologically and all that stuff, means that there's going to be a diversity of viewpoints inherently, but that in many cases we can come together to establish a great deal of agreement. Um, it's not always perfectly possible, and obviously let's say, uh, people who are very um, materialistic in their, um, in their sort of ontology of the universe and the way the, the makeup they believe the universe has are not going to see the same world as someone who is religious. But there are going to be many things about the universe that they agree, want, agree on, right? The, the basic laws of physics and biology and so forth. In most cases, there will be differences in terms of how say the religious person looks at it looks at some of these pieces like evolution through the lens of tradition, um, 
but there's actually a potential for a lot of convergence. So the question you always have to ask is, what is, is in what way can we bridge our subjectivities? What are the social processes and the kind of intellectual processes we can do to have um, what in technical language is called an intersubjectivity, right? Some kind of thing that transcends both of our viewpoints that we are able to kind of live in as a mental universe. What does this mean in practice? Like, so if we're going to operationalize this postmodern philosophy and we kind of have to to make do in the world as we find it. Like what would be if I so yesterday I was not a postmodernist and today I become a postmodernist. What is different now about how I approach the world or think about things or interact with others? Like is there any I guess action guidingness to this? Right. So for some postmodernists um it wouldn't have any impact. It's just a kind of abstract theory. Uh, the way that I tend to operate in my, li- in my life is to continue to ask myself about whether, ask myself whether I'm wrong about everything. Um, not, you know, all the time and at every moment because I might go a little bit crazy, but to consider the possibility that the way that I am looking at the world is the product of a certain larger way of putting pieces of information together and to understand that many of the disagreements I might have with people about politics or morality or, you know, cultural stuff or anything in, you know, in human life has to do with the way that I have processed and compiled information into a way of, a way of seeing the world into a worldview. And that helps me to recognize the legitimacy of different points of view in, you know, especially, which I think is especially important in sort of our era of history where there's a lot of political polarization, especially in the West. And there's a lot of kind of broad cultural divides. So it would, I, I certainly hope that more people would consider that the kind of narrative that they have or the worldview that they have about the way things work is perhaps not the only one that at least might be plausibly held to by another person um, and and think about it in that context. Is that different from just a general sense of epistemic humility and a recognition that our beliefs are based on evidence and that that evidence might be faulty or incomplete? So I mean, I could imagine someone who's not a postmodernist doesn't accept the the notions of the kind of widespreadness of these narratives, um, it, saying, "Well, of course, what you've just told me is, you know, I've got a set of beliefs, but I should not be a hundred percent certain about them, and I should be aware that the evidence I'm basing them on might be coming from." you know, sources that aren't perfect or that I don't know, I don't know all of the information and that other people might have information themselves, almost like you do this from like a Hayekian viewpoint, right? That there's local, we have local knowledge that's not widely shared. Um, and, and so I should operate in a, uh, with, with humility, but that's not, I can do that without being a postmodernist. Like, was is there a difference between that and a specifically postmodern perspective? 
Yeah, so I, I think there definitely is. Uh, and I'm glad you mentioned Hayek because I actually think Hayek is highly postmodernist in a variety of ways, especially in the way that he talks about the dispersion of knowledge. So what, what makes postmodernism much more radical than, say, you know, um, just comparing evidence is that it has skepticism about, about the things that you are trying to prove on every level, including what counts as evidence and what counts as reasonable inference from evidence. And, with, and within that notion of inference, like what laws can or processes of logic or mental connections can we make that would be reasonable to assume such that we can then form conclusions about them. So, you know, there's, a, there's that kind of classic idea uh, that, that you have in kind of, um, I don't remember with which religious tradition it comes from, but the idea that the world is balanced on the back of a giant turtle, and underneath that turtle is another turtle, and another turtle, and another turtle, and there's kind of an infinite regress of turtles. So a postmodernist would say that it's kind of skepticism about what is possible to fully verify all the way down. And not just about whether we update in terms of evidence and pieces of information. Is this I so I was I was an English major um, years ago, twenty years ago. God, um, and I had my my literary theory classes, and we read postmodernists and so on, um, and we also read we read the deconstructionists. Is this is this way of thinking like? Why is it so bound up with literary analysis specifically? Or am I – is that actually not the case and that's just a product of me having been most exposed to it in that context? Right. So I'm not an expert on the sort of like intellectual history of how different things get adopted by like different disciplines. But in term, the way that I understand it is that – uh, some of it has to do with methodologically the way that the nature of literature, right? So the fact that literature is about stories and is about perspectives leads you to naturally recognize the ways in which people come at things from different points of view and help you recognize that perhaps more so than something like science or philosophy, which starts with certain assumptions and then proceeds from there. And then there's kind of a train of logic or of math, you know, in, in the case of, of science or, or, or experimentation or whatever that rests on that. But the assumptions themselves are sort of ironclad, you know, notions about the way physics works or something. Um, whereas literature is more attuned to the possibility of not recognizing or, or, or agreeing with those assumptions. But I also think it has, so some of it has to do with the ability of literary people to recognize that. Some of it has to do with people in, in philosophy, in the, what's called the analytic tradition, being wedded to logic trains as opposed to stories. So philosophers in, on, in France and Germany and you know, the continent, what's called continental philosophy, and you know, we could talk about the history of different trends of philosophy um, if that you know, becomes important. Be, we're... Uh, but those those guys are much friendlier to to postmodernism than would be their English speaking counterparts in the analytic tradition. So some of this has to do with 
literature as a discipline. And some of this has to do with sort of cultural attitudes within different parts of the world and the way that people do philosophy. Is there also, there's a, it feels like in a lot of postmodernism, especially when it comes to the literature approach to it, there's a lot of language analysis bound yeah. up in it too. Like, so, and, and there's, there's a reaction to, so there was the structuralists, um, Saussure and was it Claude Levi Strauss? Yeah. To, as I said, it's been two decades, but, uh, so bear with me, but, uh, and, and their analysis of language as, you know, a system of signs, we have, we have these signs that then point to some underlying thing, but there's no necessary connection between the, the word and the underlying thing. Um, and, and then the post-structuralists came along, um, and is, so is there a relationship there between post-structuralism and post-modernism and, and something peculiar to language that makes it like a fruitful grounds for having conversations about these ideas? Uh, for sure. And I think that's like a, a fat, fantastic question. It's probably the most important question you might ask about why postmodernism is so important for looking at the world. And that, ha that has to do with the way in which people function through language. We, under, and we, we have you know, the capacity to understand things in sort of a vaguely conceptual, non-articulated, non-linguistic way. But a lot of the way that we communicate our understanding of the world and the way in which we form a world together is by using language. And so the problem, of course, is that language, because it's this sort of um, external thing, the series of sounds we make to talk about things that we perceive, it's very imperfect. And so it's never going to be uh, a one-to-one -one description of the world that we experience or the reality that's out there or the things that we've learned about. So recognizing that imperfection leads you to then understanding the ways in which people's views about things and the narratives that they're telling might diverge. Um, and so in terms of post-structuralism, right, you have this, if I, if I remember correctly, you have a move towards saying that the symbols that people use in Saussure and, and other sort of French um, sort of sociological theorists, and then it becomes more literary, um, are representations of the world and but they might not mean exactly what the thing you're just describing so like the, the the use of the word water might mean a bunch of different things to me uh depending on like what what you mean by it maybe it's a metaphor for something flowing or whatever but there's a kind of conceptual unity to that whereas post-structuralism kind of breaks down the idea that there's an underlying connection between different words and language and different uh, sort of assumptions about the way the world is, and that it's much more like the, the, the idea or the meaning that a word is supposed to refer to might be much more sort of displaced and internally, like sort of internally referential than structuralism would say, where it's sort of like all the words connect to each other and they represent a set of ideas that we can understand, even if it's not a kind of direct description 
of what's going on. Can you can you unpack a bit about what you mean by um, internally referential and kind of displaced? Like what that what yeah. that actually means? Because yeah. it's not entirely clear. For sure, that that stuff gets pretty dense, um, and I realize yeah. that I'm talking at a very like theory level um, about this. So the idea is, um, and uh, it might be it's helpful to talk about um, Wittgenstein's work here. Uh, especially, who's a big contributor to sort of the literature of postmodernism, although he comes from the analytic tradition and not the, not the continental one, which is notable. And the idea is that language doesn't directly describe the world because the, the words that we use are can never really approximate exactly what the thing is that we're trying to describe. Um, and we also exist in social contexts where the things we're trying to talk about are conceptual or relational, and they're not like, how uh, many inches is this or something? So uh, Wittgenstein talks about this uh, in, in his section uh, where he talks about the idea of language games. So the idea is that link, the way that we understand different words is in a cultural context and is in the ways that we live our lives or what he calls forms of life. And so when I understand, let's say what a chair is, it's because people in my culture have this idea of a thing called chair. And so when I say it, they have a notion of what I'm talking about. And so then when I talk about furniture, they also know what I'm talking about. And there's this kind of loop of concepts that are related to each other that are all within a way that we exist in the world, the way that we live our lives. But if you just said the words chair and furniture to someone outside of that context, they might not actually make sense just as words. Is that different from just, you know, there's the English language word for chair and the English language word for furniture, and those are different from the German word for chair and the German word for furniture. But but that that difference can be rectified pretty quickly by just, say, using a dictionary or saying to the German speaker, by chair, I mean this German word. Right. Like that doesn't, so, doesn't seem like a terribly, you know, deep critique of language so much as it's just, you know, we have different words for things. Right. So it depends on what the word is, right? Something like chair and furniture has more universalism among people, you know, in, in, on the globe than say assumptions about God, right? Or the values that we have or the way that we express them or the, the way that we understand what science is and the process of science. So things that are more complicated than just um, certain ways of sitting, right? Get, are, are, are then expressed in words that may not mean the same thing to someone else as they do to me. Yeah, this, I mean, this makes me think of the the last episode of the show that I recorded was um, with Jason Kuznicki on Buddhism. And one of the challenges of studying Eastern philosophy that I have found as I've, you know, increasingly gotten into it coming as someone from, you know, who knows Western philosophy pretty well is 
is kind of exactly this. It's not just that, you know, this the the stuff I'm reading was written in Pali or Sanskrit um, and I don't speak other either language, and so I need to, you know, I need to have a translation into English, but that the the concepts themselves are so embedded in an entirely different intellectual and not just, you know, not just linguistic, but intellectual tradition that even the translations don't really do them justice. And, and that you're, it feels like, it feels like there's kind of always this gauze between me as the Westerner and, and the, and a deep understanding of these other texts. And, and it's not, it's not simply that, you know, well, if I just had a translation of the words or I had a better translation or I, I broke out my dictionary to see, you know, all the different meanings of a given term, I would get it. But that this, this entire tradition is so foreign to the way that like my brain is wired in a lot of ways that it's hard to know. It's hard to even know how to enter into it. Um, is that, is that kind of like what you're describing? Yeah, so that's exactly what I'm talking about. Uh, I think you expressed it uh, really well, maybe better than I did. Um, the yeah, the idea is that on sort of deeper levels, besides beyond stuff that's very simple, and most people tend to do or need to do, like maybe biologically or something, like sit down or eat. Um, a lot of other aspects of society are not obvious in that way and have to do with a whole way of processing what you do in life and the way you think the, the laws of nature work and all kinds of stuff. So this is something that I, I have thought about recently because I've been reading a lot of stuff about the Middle Ages and the history of the Middle Ages. So one of the things that's interesting about the way people in the Middle Ages talk about religion is not just that they are very devout and they're, you know, it's much more widespread than we are. It's that what they understand the division between religion and the world to be doesn't really exist. So we, so even religious people in our contemporary world would talk about like there's this supernatural world where like God or angels exist, and it's kind of beyond us, and we have to kind of like reach reach through some kind of spiritual practice to get there. And there's more of a division between the natural world and the supernatural world. But for people in the Middle Ages, that wouldn't make sense. There is no such thing as the natural world or the supernatural world. There's just the world. And so the laws of physics are, are true, but there are also fairies and demons and stuff like that. And it's all intermeshed very thoroughly. Uh, the, the, the philosopher Charles Taylor talks about this a lot uh, in his book, a Sec The Secular Age, where he talks about how the sort of the process of how it was possible for people in the West to become secular, what sort of changes in our worldview needed to happen and how we think differently than we used to think and that sort of thing. And that is sort of a profound aspect of, or one profound aspect of what makes, say, the mod modern Westerners very different from medieval Westerners. And I think the same thing is true East-West. Yeah, it makes you, as you described it, it makes me think of, um, there's a, Western philosopher named Jay Garfield, who has written books about Eastern philosophy for kind of basically selling Eastern philosophy to Western philosophers and saying, you know, like this is this is deep and interesting and you should try to understand it, but also it's hard. Um, and in an interview with him once, he he talked about how our our Western very notions of self are 
are kind of deeply the product of a particular Judeo-Christian view of the soul and the soul's relationship to God. And that even, even today, like Western philosophers doing philosophy of mind or metaphysics who are, you know, as secular as you can get um, and don't have any time for any of that supernatural stuff are kind of trapped in this perspective of the very nature of themselves that comes from these, you know, initially supernatural sources. And that it's one of the things that causes big barriers for understanding the the non-Western views of the self, because it's not simply that you can, you know, you can say, well, no, I think you're, you know, you made this move and it goes wrong here in in your argument. It's that like just at some very fundamental level, the entire analytic and conceptual framework of of the world is is just entirely different to the to the point where like you just find it find it like baffling to be on one side of it looking at the other uh, yeah. as opposed to saying like you know no I think you know here's here's the wrong here's the wrong argument the way that you would have if you know two people in the western tradition were to argue with each other yeah, exactly. And this is why I mentioned the kind of turtles all the way down thing. It's not just like what is evidence. It's what are the fundamental building blocks of reality, of the universe, of the assumptions we make about everything, about who I am, what I'm here for, the self, how things interact with each other in my physical environment, why they do that, um, and, and also then how it impacts the way I live in society. And that's why Wittgenstein talks about forms of life. Right? He's not just talking about, like, is that a rock or a tree? He's talking about how do I exist in the world and live my life and perceive and relate to it? And how does that impact what I understand the world to be? Is, is this, though, just nihilism? In a sense, like, it's, this seems rather depressing because what it, say, what it seems to be saying is I am embedded in a conceptual framework that you know was not was not of my choosing um that is beyond my control that is that everyone else i know is embedded in but is not widely shared you know so it's in the this eastern versus western you know you've got half the world in one and half the world in the other to you know radically oversimplify um and and if these if these run as deep and they go all the way to our fundamental understanding of reality and our our fundamental perceptions of reality then does that basically condemn us to forever talking past one another so that is probably one of the biggest issues i think both with a postmodern worldview but also, assuming that postmodernism is true, the challenge that we will that we will always have as a human race, uh, which is the view that I hold, unfortunately, and there is a certain amount of tragedy in it, in the sense that there's going it's much harder for us to arrive at consensus and communicate than we might hope, um, and certainly, you know, you see the wars that we have, literally, and the sort of like culture wars that we have. And you, you know you can you can definitely see that like play out in real life. 
I don't think it's nihilistic because nihilism implies that none of us um, should have values or that it doesn't mean anything. It's, and postmodernism is more like a descriptive thing. It's not really casting value. It's saying that the, there are these processes whereby we see the world differently and we need to think about how to reconcile them. So to go back to something I mentioned earlier in our conversation, this is why the idea of intersubjectivity is really important. So the idea is that through talking to each other in society, through building communities and trying to adopt norms and practices and trying them out and seeing what works, you know, what Hayekians would talk about in terms of evolutionary ex experimentation and um, sort of diversified um, attempts at governance or at ways of living and, and so forth, you can try and arrive at something where we can agree on enough things that we're able to cooperate or understand, or at least understand each other in some meaningful sense, right? So, you know, like Republicans and Democrats um, disagree about a lot of stuff, but they all believe in like the concept of America and the constitution and there's a bunch of laws and democracy and we're all supposed to be in this like system, right? There's a lot that actually unites them and is, that is actually really significant for society to function. And I think the same thing is true across human cultures in general, even with the recognition that there are these really deep divides about reality. So it's always about a process of figuring out how we can bridge our divides, how we, and about recognizing where our worldview ends. This is, this is one of the main things that I think postmodernism is helpful for, is it helps us understand that the reason we are not able to work well together is because there are these kind of bridges, what Charles Taylor calls it a horizon, right? There's, there's a kind of edge to our worldview, and that prevents us from seeing the way that someone else is looking and the sort of edge of their horizon of their worldview, what they can see out, out in the world. So it's, I think it's very helpful in that regard. But this sounds, uh, it sounds though like there's a potential claim being made then that disagreements between people of different cultures, different ideological perspectives and so on are entirely or largely the result of basically not understanding each other, that our, our perspectives are alien or closed off, and it's that it's that lack of understanding that leads to the disagreement. But but it seems like it seems like a lot of a lot of like why we don't get along is instead simply because we want different things. And and if you get what you want, it means that I don't get what I want. So I'll give an example. Um, the the legal theorist Adrian Vermeule published, I think, yesterday. We're recording this on April first. Um, published yesterday in the Atlantic a essentially call for fascism. Um, so he is he is a Catholic integralist. Um, so he believes that the proper role of the government is to essentially force Roman Catholicism upon everyone in the name of the common good, and that the common good is kind of defined as what Catholicism thinks the common good is. Um, and so he has, Vermeule has an extremely different worldview than I do 
you know, one that contains different moral beliefs, different metaphysical beliefs, different epistemic beliefs. They're, you know, radically incommensurate worldviews. But the disagreement that I have with him doesn't feel like it is along those lines. Like I don't I don't think that if I had greater understanding of his worldview, the disagreement would evaporate. It's more that the outcomes of that, like what he wants to do with it, namely force me to become Roman Catholic at the point of a gun, um, is not at all something I want. And even if I understood it more, I still wouldn't want it. And is is that am I being, I guess, fair to postmodernism and saying it feels like more of our disagreements are of that kind than of the, you know, I don't understand quite what the Buddhist conception of the nature of self is? No, I I, I don't think postmodernism denies that a lot of our disagreements are soup are of that type, right? That's why the emphasis on worldview is so important, right? You and Adrian Van Rule, and I'll say for the record, myself as well and Adrian Verrule, have profound differences in politics and morality and worldview. And it's not like this whole intersubjectivity stuff actually will always work. It's just the best tool we have for the possibility of, of arriving at some kind of compromise or some kind of way of cooperating. But there will always be situations and worldviews that are truly irreconcilable and very difficult to work together, particularly when one side of the conversation has no interest in understanding the other. Um, and certainly, I mean, this is a biased perspective, obviously, and it comes from, from my point of view, but my reading of many of the Catholic integralists is that they have no interest in plausibly reconstructing why anyone would be like a liberal Democrat, to put it in kind of a broad, conceptual way, Right. Um, and that makes it really hard for them to cooperate, uh, and they want to impose themselves on everyone. So the thing that we want to ask, I think, is we should definitely acknowledge that people sometimes really do want different things and that we're not going to reconcile our understanding of the world. But we also need to ask why they believe it and if we have reason to believe that their reason for not believe, for believing it is a reason we think is bad or ridiculous or immoral then I think it's fine to say that they're wrong and we should oppose them. Um, so postmodernism doesn't deny that we can have huge disagreements, but it does raise ways that it is possible for us to limit them. Coming at, trying to get at this, this nature of this disagreement from another direction, especially if postmodernism says that this disagreement goes all the way down to, you know, basic kind of understanding and conceptions of reality. Does the seeming universality of science undercut the postmodern critique somewhat? So right now we're, you know, we're all, we're in the midst of a pandemic and the, essentially the entire global scientific community has turned its attention to figuring out cracking the the problem of covid-19. And so you have you have scientists from every culture there is working on this problem. And so those scientists coming from various cultures will be embedded in different narratives, have different fundamental understandings of reality, and yet it seems like, you know, say a vaccine that works will be a vaccine that works no matter which 
culture, the particular scientist who discovers it is embedded in. Um, that 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 kind of fundamental nature of, in this case, you know, health truth about health and the nature of viruses and biology and so on is is universal. Does that does that mean that there is a part of the human experience or a part of reality that is like not that's not susceptible to postmodern critique? Um, so I do not think that is the case. Um, I would say that science, just like everything else, relies on certain assumptions about the way the world works, about the notion of there being natural laws, cause and effect, you know, evolutionary processes, the, the idea that the only things that we can confirm are material. It may not deny other things, but it certainly can't confirm them. And, um, you know, in, in a whole variety of ways, different notions about sort of the laws of science of sort of growth and life and death and the notion of germs and reproduction and vaccines in relationship to those cells and germs and all these assumptions it has about the universe are assumptions, right? They might be correct assumptions. And I happen to believe that they are, but they're still assumptions. And to the extent that our understanding of the way that those things work together is incorrect in some way, um, that creates challenges to the ability of science to explain things, or at least explain things in a holistic way, right? So, for example, so um, Thomas Kuhn, uh, who's a famous kind of philosopher of science and is often claimed by postmodernists, says that scientific change uh, in his book uh, *The Structure of Scientific Revolutions* says that scientific change doesn't really come through people proving evidence across other evidence. It comes through people adopting what he calls a paradigm shift or, or an assumption of very, fairly new principles and sort of axioms by which things work fundamentally, right? So you have the Galilean theory and the Ptolemaic theory in the Middle Ages of the way um, the solar system works, whether the sun revolves around the earth, earth around the sun, all that stuff. And one is completely different from the other. And you have to change the way that the universe is structured in order to do that. So it's not just a question of evidence, but it's a question of worldview. And so to the extent that there are challenges, perhaps, in identifying um, answers to COVID-19, it's, it's, I actually think it's significant to recognize that. So for example, one of the things that makes understanding the growth of COVID-19 really difficult is understanding what causes its growth? What sorts of behaviors are people likely to engage in? How does the virus act such that it's transmittable in one way versus another, which is a notion about the way viruses behave um, and is, you know, is under discussion? There's a really good article by Tyler Cowen about this uh, on the divide between what he calls growth, sort of infinite growth, um, exponential growth theorists of, of, of disease versus sort of um, more emergent theorists who are less pessimistic about, you know, us being wiped out um, and, and are less apocalyptic and about the different ways that it can be hampered or slowed and is not inherent to exponential growth. And those are assumptions about the way viruses operate. So in many ways, a lot of the debates within science are reflective of fundamental disagreements about building blocks of the thing they're studying. Turning away from 
so this is we've been talking a lot on kind of the macro level of of cultural differences and competing cultural narratives and historical understandings and so on but coming back to the call it the postmodern self it feels like so i raise the worry about nihilism and you can imagine this also operating on a on an individual level in the sense of a, almost a crisis of confidence in one's own beliefs and concepts like a recognition that like oh my god you know everything i thought was true is maybe just a narrative that right. i have been raised into have accepted uncritically and you know so there's almost a um waking up from a dream angle to it um but but it also feels like there's this could be potentially very liberating that if you to to recognize that the things that went into making up who you are are part of these narratives and i i think we want to be careful to say that calling them stories or narratives doesn't mean that they're not valuable or don't contain you know important like actionable truth uh, that there there can be great value in the narratives that you were raised within, especially as it goes into you know forming the narrative of your own life and enabling you to to live well. Um, but at the same time, to if you am I correct that like if you recognize the nature of these things, you can say, okay, well then I can I can kind of choose to set aside parts of them or adopt different narratives. Or be more comfortable in my own views in relation to others because I can see that we are we are each products of different sets of narratives that, you know, to the extent they work differently for each of us, what works for me works for me, what works for you works for you, we can kind of just get along with each other as opposed to seeing each other as holding fast to incommensurate, you know, if what I believe is true, then what you believe necessarily must be false, and falsity is always bad and should be stamped out. Yeah, for sure. And to go back to the Catholic integralist thing, this is part of one of the things that I wish they would engage with more. Is the, So I think postmodernism is a profoundly pluralistic philosophy, right? It's not just that we have to examine all the worldviews and then figure out which one is right because it's very complicated and subjective, but also that there are pieces of existence, particularly in terms of people's individual lives and the way that they live them, that can be um, sort of equally or mutually uh, sort of able to, to happen. Um, they, can, they can both proceed um, sort of side by side. And I think that is the sort of validity to the notion of multiple narratives that you know we should emphasize because the notion of of things being a narrative doesn't mean that they're they're false it just means that they exist within a certain structure they exist within this sort of arc of a story or of a series of connections that we're making but that doesn't make them not a thing so and to, to sort of to go back to your to your possibilities thing that also does give us yeah the ability to make lots of choices to note to think about our lives my ways that our lives might be different right so i can i can maybe um i can i thought that i identified as one gender i can become a different gender or i thought i was straight and i'm gay or i'm bisexual or whatever um and this can you know or different religions um 
different, you know, civil society organizations, different things that are very important to the way that we understand ourselves as individuals, um, what our what our identities are supposed to be. So recognizing the ways in which the commitments that we have are not necessarily integral to who we are, and that who we are is an ever-changing sort of process thing. Um, at that, you know, there's there's all these possibilities out there gives us, yeah, more recognition of, of, of all the cool stuff that exists in our world and that we could do and be. If that's the case, why do so many people find postmodernism so threatening or, or perceive it to be so dangerous? And why has it become, especially on, on the conservative right in the United States, like, Postmodernism is basically a buzzword for everything bad. Right. So some of this has to go back, go, goes back to the like things that are associated with movements and people are more opposed to the movement to the, than to the idea. So I would hazard that most conservatives who, you know, who lash out at postmodernism um, do not understand what it means or do not use it, co- you know, coherently, particularly, you know, like when Jordan Peterson says that, uh, the left is taken over by postmodern neo-Marxism, which is a sort of inherently contradictory phrase because Marxism is a specific narrative and postmodernism is about the recognition of mutually exclusive narratives. Um, but to the extent that there are conservatives or people on the right who actually do know what postmodernism is, I think it's because conservatives are really committed to the idea of there being one very certain absolute truth, often a religious truth or a moral truth, or that society has to run on certain rules and laws, and that those are the things that are correct. And there is no possibility for any of the other ones to be correct, because it's kind of like a denial of the things that exist and are, and that allow society to function, right? So if we mess around or change the way that we understand gender, then like families will collapse or something because gender is very core to families. Um, And so I think understanding like conservative fears about the notion that change or, or sort of um, radical experimentation might be socially destructive, that kind of conservative intuition gets a little closer to understanding why postmodernism might be threatening because it undermines the idea that there's one possible way to be or think or exist, particularly in terms of lifestyle worldview or whatever, and then on a kind of more abstract kind of philosophical level, you know, moral moral questions might be more uh, less clear or more complex, perhaps not relativistic, but not as ironclad sort of natural law. This is what the Pope says, as we as you as some conservatives might want. On the flip side of that, why does Postmodernism, both you know, as it was coming about, and even you know, in our contemporary world, seem to be overwhelmingly tied to not just the American left, but to the American far left. Yeah, so I wouldn't say it's all. It's it's sort of one faction of the left, right? Because there's a faction of the left that's very not postmodern that is really wedded to traditional leftist theories of society like especially marxism and the notion that you know there's a struggle between classes and there's these uh and every and the fundamental issues of society or economic that kind of thing and what you might call a more postmodern left that is interested in issues like identity and ways of experiencing the world and those kinds of things so there 
depending on the kind of left that you exist in, postmodernism is either like very congenial because it allows you to understand, for example, like the struggles of oppressed groups because they have like a truth or a narrative that you don't know about, or it can be destructive and 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 problematic because it denies some sort of fundamental structure of oppression that might exist. So it's not inherent that postmodernism is a left is congenial to being left wing. Um, in terms of its kind of origin history, um, as it happens, I think that the thing I'm about to mention, I think is actually not a very good book for understanding postmodernism. But the one thing that it gets right, I think, is the sociology of it. So Stephen Hicks's explaining postmodernism um, attempts to, you know, argue against postmodernism, critique it from various ways, and that in ways that I think are philosophically fairly poor and unfounded. But the one argument he makes that I think is correct is that postmodernism emerges out of the crisis of Marxism on the part of left intellectuals during the latter half of the 20th century. And there's a kind of abandonment of the idea that there can be a grand narrative to explain things anymore because the big narrative that they used to believe in, Marxism, was a failure and Stalin killed a lot of people and all that stuff. So it does emerge out of a certain kind of group of people who lost faith in a worldview as a historical thing. For people who are interested in exploring these ideas more, where would you recommend they turn? Because if there's one thing I remember from my years as an English major reading postmodernists is they tend not to be the clearest of writers. Um, postmodern <laughs> philosophy, postmodern literary theory is often quite a beast to to read. It almost, it almost feels like they're trying to be intentionally as obscure as they can possibly be. Um, so for someone who doesn't want to wade into that kind of stuff – what might be interesting starter reading? So if you want just a summary thing, um, I'll do some shameless self-plugging here. You, people should read my article on libertarianism.org, which I think provides kind of a helpful overview. Um, but then after that, they might want to look at some of the books that I reference, particularly the ones written by people who are in the analytic tradition, but are postmodern friendly. So there's this trend among European continentalist writers, especially French and German writers, who have very kind of like adjective-laden ways of speaking and are very dense and confusing that make it very hard to understand. But people who write in English that are connected to these sorts of ideas are helpful. So someone like Richard Rorty, for example, I think is pretty accessible for a postmodern writer. So is Wittgenstein, who's also writing in, in kind of a, a clear, analytic way. Um, and also... Among the, the, among the kind of continental Europeans, the postmodern condition by Jean-Francois Lyotard, which provides the like classic definition of incredulity towards metanarratives, also not that poorly written and, and it's fairly clear. So there are, there are writers among the postmodernists that are not just kind of a, a, a sort of, you know, a melange of, you know, complicated meta-adjective ad stuff. Definitely do not start with Derrida, who frankly is impossible um, and really, really hard to get through.